Hello, everybody, and welcome to Backbay's podcast on remote patient monitoring. I'm Jonathan Gertler. I'm the CEO and managing partner at Backbay Life Science Advisors, and I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleague, Corey Nahn, who's one of our consultants and someone with whom I've worked very closely on health tech and med tech issues. So, Corey, welcome, and I'd love you to just take a couple minutes and give everybody listening your background, and then we'll delve right into the questions. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Uh, very happy to be with you here today, too. Medtech and patient monitoring is definitely something near and dear to my prior life as an engineer's heart. I got my PhD in biomedical engineering uh, while working for military medical research uh, for five years, where I specifically worked in developing uh, novel sensing technologies. Um, and how those can be integrated into patient care. So very excited to speak with you today on this exciting topic. Oh, thanks so much for, for joining me. It's really been remarkable. I, I have to say that 20 years ago, I was involved in one of the early telemedicine companies when I was still very much in academic medicine, but also working in venture. And it was a time when the world wasn't ready for it. We didn't have the infrastructure. We certainly didn't have the physician knowledge or the provider knowledge around how to use healthcare IT tools. And yet it's been around for a long time, but post-COVID, and I hope we are indeed post-COVID, but at least peri-COVID, we've seen an enormous change in the way medicine is practiced, first by necessity, but obviously an acceleration of some principles that have been long established. Investment has poured into the space, and although one always has to be concerned about big investment trends, I think this is one that is justified, and it's here to stay. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what have been the salient features of the investment into health tech in general, but really specifically because we're talking today about the new ways in which we're monitoring and treating patients. And let's talk about that. Love to hear your thoughts about where this investment will all go. Definitely. And as you've pointed out, we've all become very sort of intimately aware of this uh, shift to a more remote care model. But interestingly enough, a lot of the investment in patient monitoring started booming even before COVID, which arguably primed the system for the ultimate tipping point of that catalyst. Back in 2018 and 2019, over three quarters of venture investment went to companies with novel sensing or wearable platforms. This really helped drive some of the foundational devices to capture more accurate data from patients. A great example of how this technology has progressed has been in the traditional halter monitor. I know 10 years ago, my sister had to wear one and it was about the size of a small lunchbox and had 10 to 12 leads going everywhere on her body. And these days, uh, there are wearable patches uh, that solve the same problem. So that money really expedited our development there. And in the last year, we've seen a shift in the investment more so to the digital health side. Uh, there's actually been just over the last year, a threefold increase there. And this is likely a result of the increasing realization of the clinical importance 
of how to translate this better data capture into meaningful clinical insights, which is really what is needed for the ultimate delivery of better care. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see. And, and certainly one of the concerns I would have and ask you to comment about it, there, there are a lot of sensors. There's a lot of engineering solutions that allow us to capture blood glucose, increasingly blood pressure, certainly oxygenation, EKGs, I mean, certainly um, Garmin, Apple, you know, the Aura Ring, all of these sensors are out there. Um, two, real, two questions about it. One is, what's your take on the fidelity of the sensors? How much, um, how much attention is really being paid to the accuracy and the reproducibility and the reliability of all of the proliferating sensors that are around? And then the second part of the question we'll get to is what do you do with the information? But let's start with the first. Absolutely. Um, Critical questions in sort of digesting this remote patient monitoring space as we like to bucket this in a big umbrella, but it's it's really about, as you pointed out, some of these nuanced delineations with the first step in it being sensing or the capturing of, as you highlighted, accurate physiological data. The biomedical space has actually benefited a lot from advancements in electronics, being able to decrease the size of some of the processing power that can now be on these devices. So as I highlighted, the halter monitor used to have to be that big because of all the semiconductors and hardware that was needed to process the data in order to make it clinically useful um, from a fidelity standpoint. Now that we have uh, made advancements in electrical engineering for processing power, these can come down to smaller wearable, truly wearable devices. And just by the fact of decreasing the size decreases the noise in that signal. So it's a very unique sort of coming of age time for wearables where they're finally truly wearable. But to tackle your second part of the question, that's all well and good, but what does this mean clinically? So we can get better data. How does that ultimately translate to these clinical insights. And that's the next step in this remote patient monitoring sort of spectrum. It's the analytics. How do we make sense of that data? And then layering on top of that, how do we then take those insights and integrate them into the patient's overall uh, electronic health record and sort of series of data across their life? Getting to the last mile of coordinated care, which involves the ultimate delivery of clinical interventions to the patient. Um, So to determine what is meaningful for this entire series is really going to depend on a company's ability to communicate their value proposition ultimately in the terms of these improved patient outcomes. This is where partnerships across these domains become critical. A company that has done this uh, wonderfully is uh, BioIntelligence. They've developed a 
beautiful, just as it sounds, bio sticker sensor to monitor vital signs. And they've partnered with a broader range of companies such as Philips um, for transitioning uh, patients monitoring from in the hospital to home care. Um, they've also partnered with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society to do some decentralized clinical trials. A uh, company that we may have recently all heard of with Gluco, um, their big raises and recent partnership uh, with Lilly. They've been looking to sort of go the other way as a digital health company, partner with Lilly, who has an insulin pen um, sort of platform. So these companies are able to demonstrate the broader utility of their platform through these partnerships in sort of a one plus one equals three standpoint. You know, it's, it's always noteworthy. And I, I think this has been the case in diagnostics for as long as I've been involved in, in medicine and on, on the investment and advisory side of, of the equation, that there's so much information that people spend money on, they develop. And yet at the end of the day, it doesn't really have an impact on care or we don't know what to do with it. And we've seen that across you know, complex cancer and cardiac diagnostics and across the board. And so in, implicit, I think, in all of your statements is that the sensors have reached the point of reliability, at, at least in the clinical grade sensors, because I do think there are a lot of commercial grade sensors that are out there that are actually not particularly accurate, but create a sense of community or what have you. And that that becomes the selling point rather than the actual physiologic data um, themselves. But it's not just the physiologic data, it's the integration, it's the use, it's the information, and then it's the delivery of care. Um, and as always has been true, if you're not providing an action um, that then elicits a reaction clinically, you're not providing anything that's useful. So that last mile, as you referred to it at, that coordinated care, um, traditionally, I think it's... Um, much more about fulfillment on an Amazon Prime truck, but obviously it's relevant to healthcare as well. Talk to me a little bit about that that last stretch of delivering care. And also, as you do that, touch a little bit upon the challenge for younger companies to make sure that they can integrate into larger delivery systems and the platforms that they're using, because that's certainly a colossal challenge that's essential for any economic success. And you're right that the last mile issue is definitely not unique to healthcare. Um, Amazon has invested a lot in making sure that last car gets to your front door every time. Um, but healthcare itself is a delivery system at the core. So as you highlighted, the ultimate delivery of that care is really a non-trivial aspect and challenging for upstart companies uh, to be able to integrate into an extremely complex um, and nuanced environment. And the relative value of this last mile can be seen through some of the high deal, uh, high value deals and financings that are needed to sort of get these companies in there. Um, it can be seen from the even large deals uh, with Teladoc and Lavongo's $18 billion deal, 
Uh, and more recently, even traditional tech players getting some skin in the game with Microsoft uh, putting in $16 billion for Nuance's health communications platform. Uh, for car companies out there raising venture financing, um, Roe is one that's been coming up a ton with uh, their $500 million raise earlier this year that now values them at $5 billion um, to bring to scale these pharmacy service, telehealth, in-home care, um, even, <laughs> even getting in with the uh, latest fad of the SPAC game. Uh, there's a digital health-specific SPAC started by some of the former Livongo execs. And so to your follow-up question, how do young companies uh, break into this? It really gets back to sort of what we alluded to before. Uh, some of these very intentional partnerships uh, to demonstrate your clinical value uh, that you bring. Uh, some early, early in COVID, some companies with novel digital health or telehealth platforms established relationships with uh, healthcare organizations, uh, certain hospital systems to help bridge that gap where there was truly an unmet need. We were all figuring it out on the fly. And being able to demonstrate the utility through some of those clinical real life examples um, helped to prove the concept of their platform and then see be able to benefit from the subsequent investment. It's actually an interesting observation. And uh, as I think many know, you know, Back Bay has a very active European practice as well. A lot of the health tech companies have very compelling and interesting technologies that have been tested in some of the traditional single payer systems, whether it's Nordic or, or elsewhere in Europe. And then the complexity for them of coming to the United States, which is where a large, large market is, really can be daunting and, and, and overwhelming. And a lot of the questions around regulatory, a lot of the questions around reimbursement need to be answered prospectively. And so here's a, a bit of a caveat for our European listeners on this podcast. Make certain that you've explored that, even if you haven't invested the money to have definitive answers, that as you approach U.S. investors, that you actually really do know those aspects of the landscape. And as you've, you've said, Corey, doing this in, in a partnership can be really um, attractive. I'll also throw out there for young companies that are thinly funded and have an idea and have engineering, and even if they have good intellectual property protection, joining hands with one of the giants or joining hands with multi-billion dollar companies can be frightening because you worry about whether your ideas are safe and whether in fact it is indeed a partnership as opposed to a test and then um, you know that you'll be, you'll be left at the gate. All, all things to consider. But as we, you know, as we get further into this discussion, um, with all of the clinical interest that you've alluded to and with all of the sophistication and sensors and the development and the last mile delivery systems, this is also, and you've alluded to SPACs already, it has created a very frothy landscape of financing, of M&A, of public markets. What, what's, what's your take on that marketplace and what do you think um, should be considered by smaller and mid-sized companies that are entering the fray. 
Oh, completely. And this is personally one of the things I find most exciting about this landscape right now. To say it's an active marketplace is the understatement of the year. Um, if you're a small company, you've got lots of buyers. If you're a big company, you've got lots of competition. Um, this increased competitive landscape is driving up deal values. And the first half of 2021 uh, has already outstripped the whole of 2020 in financings, M&A values. So if you're a smaller med tech playing in one of uh, the specific segments we discussed earlier between sensing, analytics, or uh, coordinated care, you have a broad array of potentially interested partners. You even just listen to the names of the companies we've thrown out here, uh, pharma, larger med techs, healthcare systems, even traditional tech. Um, so if you're small and looking to uh, either exit or grow, it's really gonna depend on that strategy, how you position yourself. So if you're looking for a near-term exit, finding an acquirer who's either in your same space and needing to innovate to keep up with the Joneses um, could be a good uh, bet, such as one of the established medical players. Um, we've seen uh, you know, Boston Scientific acquire uh, telemetry companies such as Preventus. Um, but also looking up or downstream, like we've mentioned. Um, this is somewhere where I personally think we're going to start seeing more as over the past year, we've seen a lot of these digital health companies raise some large rounds. Um, they may start reaching down the chain to analytics or sensing companies to try and vertically integrate to provide a more comprehensive platform. Um, on the other hand, if you're a small company and still looking to sort of grow to the next inflection point, that's going to be a lot of these creative partnerships that we've been talking about um, to open up sort of a broader addressable market. And again, demonstrate to either investors or acquirers down the road um, that you really can support a one plus one equals three uh, clinical value proposition. You know, one, one thing I'll throw in at this point, and I, and I will admit that this is a pet peeve that you and I, I'm sure, share, is that in our, in our world, biotech has gotten a massive amount of attention and obviously a massive amount of capital flows over the last decade. And it's been sustainable and it's been wonderful because it's created just some extraordinary successes. But intrinsic to biotech is that it tends to be more and more arcane biology, which means inevitably it takes care of fewer and fewer numbers of patients. And I think one of the great promises um, ahead is med tech and health tech, because these are solutions that really approach huge numbers of patients. They are system solvers, not just clinical solvers. And one thing that's really interesting for me as somebody who's been involved in, in all of these fields for a long, long time, is that traditionally the acquisition and the partnership world in med tech was really narrow. So if you were a cardiovascular company, you had three natural buyers. If you were an orthopedic company, you had three natural buyers. And, and now we have a public market, we have a SPAC market, and 
amazingly, we have a tech market, we have private equity, medtech and health tech have just suddenly the exit possibilities and the partnering possibilities have expanded remarkably. And I think that's one of the great bellwethers for why it's such an attractive investment space coming forward. It solves huge problems, it solves system problems, and suddenly the exit providers are way more numerous than they ever were historically. So that that's just a, a great thing. Um, Corey, talk, talk to me a little bit about um, traditional med tech. You've alluded to Boston Scientific already, and, and certainly we've seen this elsewhere. Talk to me a little bit as we wrap up about traditional med tech moving into non-device-oriented plays or complementary plays that um, work with their devices, but at the same time are really about information, tracking, healthcare delivery, et cetera. I'm fascinated by that. I, I like how you phrase it to sort of traditional med tech, um, as you know, we're familiar, even in sort of the pharma space as well, traditional large companies, it takes a lot of energy to move a big ship. Um, but one of the things that they're going to have to intentionally go about in this new landscape is sort of doing an internal audit on what their gaps are and evaluating how they need to account for those in the future growth strategies. Um, as you mentioned, you know the traditional cardiovascular uh, companies, they'll acquire the cardiovascular devices and what's the next greatest, latest thing. But as this uh, sort of integrated health system expands, reaching across to remote care is becoming more important. Um, we're seeing company, companies such as Zimmer Biomed um, putting sensors into some of their implants um, so they can monitor the life of this or even capture data on how patients are going about their life um, in sort of a day-to-day -day standpoint. So that's really expanding the... Um, lens of care that these traditional medtechs need to think about and how their devices are going to play nice in this new connected system uh, with as electronic health records and other sort of connected devices come online. Again, solving that coordinated care challenge is a non-trivial problem. And it's not one that they've traditionally been accustomed to tackling. So they will need to look out too and see about some of these smaller med techs. And given this you know, active marketplace that we discussed, they're, they're getting scooped up quick. Um, so place in your bet and uh, bring it in is going to really feed forward. Corey, thanks for all those comments. Let's, let's close with just one additional piece of advice from you, if you will, the diligence process in any setting, biotech, medtech, health tech, can be onerous, needs to be complete and thorough. Obviously, we spend a lot of time doing that on behalf of our colleagues and clients, et cetera. Talk to me a little bit about where you think the critical issues are in diligencing health tech and medtech offerings so that you're prepared for the financing, you're prepared for the partnership, you're prepared for the liquidity event. As you mentioned, we're all very used to traditional pharma diligence and thinking it as critical there, but the increasingly complex environment of medtech makes it uh, equally um, important. And these, some of the key points that are really 
critical to med tech involve uh, adoption barriers and you know depending if it's a hospital-based product if it's an at-home product being clear on who the ultimate customer is even though your uh, device may be being worn by a patient who's paying for that is it the system is it the patient um, and also considering with on the digital health side or some of the analytics side, how is your offering proprietary and differentiated? Um, being able to clearly articulate and defend um, your positioning on some of those key principles is really critical when sort of answering those diligence questions um, and often, as I know we do uh, very commonly for companies, sort of giving them the answers to the test questions in advance so that when it's prompted by either investors or acquirers, they can present that and they already know and can articulate uh, their strategy for it. So definitely uh, an extremely critical consideration for this space going forward. There's a huge amount of activity, there's a huge amount of noise, and there's a huge amount of promise. And I'll, I'll close this, first of all, by thanking you, Corey, for sharing your, your knowledge and your enthusiasm. And just say again that we, we traffic broadly, all of us in healthcare and the life sciences, across biotech, across biopharma, classic and traditional med tech and, and now health tech, but this ability to serve broader populations, this ability to change the way medicine is practiced, building on all of the cornerstones that have been there, but now accelerating it in what we hope is a post-pandemic era, I think is among the most exciting things that we face on a daily basis. So as always, thanks for joining us. And Corey, again, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you for listening to the Back Bay Life Science Report, brought to you by the Back Bay Life Science Advisors Strategy and Investment Banking Teams. To learn more, please visit us at bblsa.com and connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. For show notes or links to items mentioned in the show, visit the podcast page on our website. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening source.